Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 223, and today's guest is Andres Rodriguez, founder and CTO of Nasuni. If you are a venture capitalist, you are most likely looking for entrepreneurs who can identify problems ahead of the market, but of course not too, too early. And you're likely also looking for founders who are uniquely qualified to solve those problems, plus build a world-class company at scale. It's a tall ask, but entrepreneurs like Andres are made for this. He's a serial entrepreneur who loves hard tech. He likes the technical challenges that most people don't have the expertise or desire to solve. He has built many successful companies, and the common thread is his ability to see how the market will evolve, and in his case, how it will evolve around the world of data storage, especially in the cloud. His latest company, Nasuni, is the world's first cloud-native global file system. As previously noted, being early to market can be a competitive advantage, and this is certainly the case for Nasuni, as the company has been growing at a very rapid pace. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a fun discussion about a failed startup that Andres was building with his brother Antonio, which was aimed at solving the problem of home media storage for consumers, which was a very different landscape back in 2000. How his graduate work in physics at Boston University helped shape the foundation of his expertise. The details on a buzz, a first-generation social media company that was acquired by the New York Times. Building Archivus, the first enterprise-class cloud storage system, which was acquired by Hitachi. All the details on Nasuni, from its creation to its aggressive growth plans ahead. Advice on hiring and building out a company's initial engineering team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz job board is absolutely blowing up. Every week, we keep hitting a new milestone in terms of the number of jobs. So there are so many amazing opportunities to check out across all the hottest companies in tech. You'll find positions at all levels of experience across all job functions like product, engineering, sales, marketing, customer success, user experience, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Andres. Andres, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to talk to you because you are a serial entrepreneur that has many, many success stories. And we're going to talk about those success stories. But as I always do, I spend a lot of time dissecting a person's background, just researching all these little twists and turns throughout their professional journey. And I found one that I was convinced this idea would be in my home. And it was called Memora. <laughs> so... Media's changed. We now just stream things to our smart TV. But I was convinced back in 2000, I was going to have a hub in my basement that was going to serve up all of my digital media, my movies, my TV shows, my music. Uh, and I figured this was something that some startup would have done that would have gotten acquired by Comcast. And this would have been their offering of the future. <laughs> and this is 2000, yeah. keep in mind. So this is a long time ago. But uh, and you are actually building this. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so amazing. So talk about that company, which obviously isn't around today. So, you know, out of all the success you've had, you've had lessons learned. So talk about this company and what you learned. Oh, definitely. You know, my, so I started the company with my brother, Antonio, who's now a, a venture capitalist at Matrix. And the, um, you know, back then we were both just hustling entrepreneurs and we, we looked at broadband and we looked at what was going on with, you know, computer medias and broadband. And we said, you know, the, what's going to happen, and this is, you know, this is sort of the way my, my dad trained us, always 
you know, in my family, we don't talk sports. We don't talk politics. We don't talk any of this stuff. We only talk technology. We're an all technology family. And so we're always thinking, you know, what's coming next and what's, what are the major trends and how are they going to, you know, collide into each other and so on. And we, we really felt, and I think we were accurate about half of it. We felt that um, media was going to converge and you were going to have one place where you were going to have not just your videos and your music, but your personal videos, your commercial videos, your personal recordings, your, um, you know, media music. At the time, we were still doing CD-ROMs and we were ripping them into, we were just starting to rip them into computers. And that in itself seemed very interesting, but the combination of that with broadband, the idea of reversing the access, and I'm always... You know, that's something that we, we just love to do uh, in my house. It's, it's like take an idea and flip it upside down. See what happens when you, when you turn it upside down. At the time, you know, there was all this talk about, you know, this company wanted to do the media for all your streaming video. And this company wanted to do the audio version of that. And for us, it was like, let's turn it around. Let's see if we can turn, if we can get a, a media hub center to be closest to you so that you can have outrageously high speeds and tons of storage in it because it's yours, it sits in your basement. And to connect to it, you're gonna use broadband in reverse. So when you're away from your basement, when you're at work, when you're traveling, whatnot, you're gonna connect to it via the internet and it's gonna serve all that, all that media and all that content, uh, you know, rather than going to say Apple Music or whatnot. And you know, the, I think the, the, the piece that we, got wrong there's just some details like you know competing the device was fifteen hundred dollars and the moment i learned an important lesson on price point um if you're going to sell something for fifteen hundred dollars better be damn damn close to the value that a, a personal computer can add which is a lot of value there's a lot you know built and a very rich ecosystem around the personal computer uh if you want to have any kind of volume success with the device um but the piece that and it sort of inspired the companies and the, the thoughts that came after that. The piece that really, I think we got wrong was this idea of the, the up. I think it was very clever to flip the model upside down. What we didn't understand, and, and someone smarter than me said it very early on, was the burden that we were putting on the end users to keep this server running in their basement. I mean, that meant it had to be on, power had to be on. Uh, had to, you had to protect the data somehow. You had to have an internet connection to it with an IP address. It was a lot of burden. And, you know, the cloud has just made all that go away. And what ended up happening was exactly the reverse in that our personal media went to the cloud and in the cloud, it was married with commercial media. And, you know, today, at least for me, you know, I'm an Apple guy. I've got everything, both personal and commercial on Apple. And, you know, the rest may be, you know, the odd Netflix show. And it's, it's, it, it happened, but it happened. The convergence did happen, but it happened with, you know, professional data centers and the whole thing was, you know, really the whole thing had to go as far away from your home and you had to become just an access to that cloud. And that's, that's the model now. Now, in terms of like a good lesson learned, um, you know, Right out of Memora, we both were convinced that we were going to flip the model. So we basically said, 
way too complicated for the end users. We are super geeks. Most of the world is not. And perhaps you would have been a good customer key, but most of the world is just ready to consume content and to not ever have to worry about a computer ever again. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of set my mind on the data part of what we have been doing at Memora. Like how do you build high capacity, you know, self-protected storage and deliver that from core data centers? And, uh, and my brother Antonio, you know, created Tableau, which was kind of a, the, the photo uh, experience around what we have been doing, some of what we have been doing at Memora. He's, he's much more interested in kind of the consumer, you know, user experience. That's, that's his personal interest. And I'm much more interested, I'm a plumber by nature. I'm interested in the, what goes under the surface. Well, you gave us you gave us a, a glimpse of your your childhood growing up and your family dynamics. So, what, like your parents, like what did they do for work? Like why was it the the conversation always around technology? So we grew up in Venezuela, and uh, my dad uh, was a, a, an electric engineer and uh, ran the uh, operations side of the telephone company for the company for the country. So we were just immersed uh, in technology, and you know he'd been lucky enough to study in America. So very early on, he'd been exposed to computers. And so from the time, you know, I was 12 years old, my dad, you know, gave me an Apple II and the rest is history. And the same kind of treatment with my brother. And, you know, it was always, it was always the marriage of computers and programming, which we were far better than my father was at with communications, which he was far better than we were all at. His passion was, you know, cellular telephony. But again, it's the same thing. You know, it's kind of like, you know, so what happens if everyone is carrying a phone in their pocket? What do you need to do? Both in terms of what can you do in terms of the end user experience? What new things can you deliver to that user? Um, you know, and in a way, Tableau, my brother's company, benefit a great deal from the fact that you could take pictures from your phone and send them somewhere. And these photos could be automatically laid out for you. That was a kind of precursor uh, to Instagram, um, but also infrastructure. Like, what does it mean when you have that much data, when you have the cell towers, where do you deploy the infrastructure? Where do you need speed? Where do you need capacity? Where do you need compute? How do you store forward so that you can keep things reliable? Um, so it's a, it's a lot of, it's a real passion. You know, it's a, it's a real interest that, that I think we've always had. And, and, you know, Venezuela was in many ways a very good environment for that because it encouraged you to be independent and to be very entrepreneurial about stuff and you could get very far away on your own you know before most people knew what personal computers were we were using them and doing all kinds of things uh with them uh, and then you know our family as a whole is very entrepreneurial you know they've gone from making like soap factories candle factories cement factories you name it it's all like uncles and uncles doing crazy stuff and uh and and building sort of the commercial sector of the company. Unfortunately, Venezuela was drowned by oil. So a lot of the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit was kind of, we all left the country after it became like a corrupt oil, you know, uh, oligarchy, which is like, we were done with it. Now we're all in America and all over the world. So then you decided to study manufacturing engineering uh, for your undergrad at BU, and then you got a master's in physics. So what was your, your thinking there? So, you know, I studied manufacturing because I was interested in computers and robotics. Um, and I had the, the really unfortunate thing. And, and, you know, if you know my brother's background, it's, it's kind of ironic. I wrote my thesis on, three, on a 3D printer. 
high-speed 3D printer. You did? Um, yes, that wouldn't rely on two-dimensional, uh, you know, on, on two-dimensional layers to do the writing. It would actually, it could, it could, it could write directly on 3D space using using laser beams. And the university just was so bad at encouraging me that I never forgave them for that. Um, and and you know, and I never forgave the engineering department for that. So when I went back for grad school. Um, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this kind of engineering kind of, um, it was a lot of like um, middle of the road thinking. And I was like, I'm gonna do physics. I'm gonna do something really cool, pursue truth and all this stuff. And it was a phenomenal change. I, everyone in the department was smarter than I was and everyone was so passionate and all they care about was really the physics. Um, and, you know, after three, four years in academia, and in, in grad school, I was like, this is great. And everyone's super smart, but it's not for me. Like my thing is really technology. You know, what I would end up doing in school um, was I was always a computer guy. So to me, the physics was a means to an end. The end was the computer programs we were writing. And probably the most exciting thing I did when I was in the physics program was um, distributed. I got myself into, I'd always, I, I've been very curious about distributed software programming when I was an undergrad. Like how do you break down a software problem into small, very simple pieces that can be autonomous and build towards a larger goal to do things like solving mazes and you know simulation work and stuff like that. Once I got to grad school, it was more like how do we build a storage system so that, or how do we build a compute system so that we don't have to pay millions of dollars for say a connection machine, you know, a super parallel computer. And, you know, and I had really good friends that had done uh, early work on, on Sun, which was a kind of the open, you know, open system of the time it was a very exciting platform for anyone who was very, who was technical. And they taught me a lot in terms of how to wire together very big Unix clusters to achieve very similar things then, you know, for just a few hundred thousand dollars, you could do stuff that you were doing on multi-million dollar parallel computers. I was like, this is definitely a future direction for solving all kinds of infrastructure problems. I was like, if you can take the problem and you can break it down into small, simple components and then put it on commodity hardware, that's all wired together with commodity ethernet, there is no problem too big for that approach. And you know, fast forward 20 years, that is essentially the cloud and everything that's built for the cloud is built with those same architecture principles. Break it down, spread it. Yeah. Too forward, too forward looking. I mean, my entire career, I've been trying to be less forward looking. Like a few <laughs> decades, 10 years ahead, that's sort of manageable, 20 years, forget it. It's a terrible right. investment. Okay, so we're gonna, Stay with that looking ahead theme because you started a company with Andy Sack called Abuzz that was like a first generation social network. I mean, it was not com media, yes. consumer. Yeah. Like, and uh, even the, the premise of, of what we consider a like on Facebook was something that was baked into this product, it was knowledge management. But I mean, so talk about that first company because this is what I get I think for the audience we need to give context of the time frame so the date that this started and so let's see if I can get the dates right I think the date 
for a, a buzz. We started 1996, 95, and uh, the New York Times bought us in 99, I believe. Um, make it the year off by one. Uh, you know, that, that, is a, that is a classic. That is a great sort of, I think the younger you are, the more, the more there is to learn. And so, and you make the most hilarious, painful mistakes. Um, you know, after, after struggling, after grad school, struggling to find my way to how do you get a company funded? You know, there wasn't the kind of rich ecosystem that there is today. And, and there wasn't a clear path, even in Boston for an entrepreneur, just trying to get the pieces together to start a company. But I was very lucky. Uh, I met a, met a great investor, Harry George. He had a, he had a smaller fund, but he, he saw me and he was like, look, you look like a really technical guy. You look like you're really deep in technology. Um, you need to learn a lot about the business side and the sales side. I'm going to connect you with this other guy um, and then see if you guys, this was Andy Sack, my co-founder, see if you guys um, come up with something interesting together and, uh, and then come talk to me. And he did. And it was the most valuable thing. He ended up funding a bus later on. It took us a year to convince him to fund us. With and we batted around lots of ideas and lots of things to do, and you know, it shows like networks and connections is like one of the biggest things that hold people back from becoming entrepreneurs. And and you really need a balance. And you know, Andy and I were really well balanced in many ways. You know, he was he was out there. He was super networked, uh, but he was very distracted and he was not technical at all. He knew it, which was great. So he was. Um, from the beginning, you know, we were sort of a very good team together. And the, the thing about Abuzz that is, that is interesting, we had a, a third co-founder, is that, you know, Abuzz is like one of those companies that I think um, it suffered from, it was ahead in the market. So social media was still years, you know, Facebook was still at least five years in the future from where we were. Um, but it, 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 one of my investors said that one of the best lines about it, which is we lack conviction. And it wasn't that we lacked working hard. You know, this, this were the time when we, we worked through the nights, we worked through weekends. There was no schedule. There was like, we were always in the office, always working. And um, it's one of the reasons the New York Times bought us because we did a lot of contract work and we were on time, exceeded expectations because we were so hard working. So that was not the lack of conviction. The lack of conviction was what we were about to as a company. And... The reason was there was a clash in direction at the, at the heart of the company. My, myself, I'm a plumber and infrastructure guy. I was interested in very transactional things. I was interested in, um, you know, eBay was one of the things that had just come in the, in the, in the, in the radar. And we, I thought we could do any number of uh, eBay-like business models. And the one that I particularly liked was airline tickets. I thought you could create a marketplace for airline tickets. And, and I really wanted to go with that auction model. This is like three years before price climb, right? So, and so that was really well-timed, right? Uh, Sean, you know, our, our third co-founder was also sort of more of a scientific philosophy-minded guy. He saw the potential of social media and social networks way ahead of anyone. He was committed to the idea that the search engines had been really powerful. And at the time, 
you know, the most powerful search engine was Alta Vista. There was no Google. There was none of that stuff, which funny enough would get its break because of the social structure of the web, because of the visible structure of the links. So, um, you know, Sean was right in saying, you know, when we, if we can build networks of people, if we can attach not people to data, but people to people through the internet, it'll be the most powerful thing anyone has ever done. And so the company constantly kind of shifted focus between being that company that would be a social media company and a transactional company where people would be able to somehow auction their something. And we, we batted that around and we came up with this idea of people would want to ask questions and answer questions from and have answers to those questions from experts, which was very much like what Quora did later on. And, you know, I think it was a good compromise, but I think that if we had done either a pure social media push, like more something like at that time would have been something like LinkedIn or a pure auction company, like something like Priceline, it would have been a bit. Those two companies would have been better companies than this company that was kind of a tug of war between trying to be one thing and trying to be the other thing. Because nothing kills a social media faster than some kind of transactional revenue model. People just don't want to, it's too uncertain whether you're going to get a good answer or not from an expert. And so any kind of money in the middle, just it's the ultimate friction to social media. Now, fortunately for us, the New York Times was at that time venturing big time into the internet and they had seen the work we could do. They knew we had a good engineering team and they believe in the mission. They believe in the idea that if they could link the subscribers into a community of expertise, it would give them a defense strategy against other things where they felt that they were under attack. One was news was getting commoditized and going to the internet. The other one was classifieds were going to these big sites um, uh, mon monster, yeah, monster at the time, um, and you know those those are kind of like the you know advertisement and classifieds are the two pistons that any newspaper runs on. So we were meant to provide a, a kind of third piston, a third wheel for for the revenue model um, around these expertise networks, and that was a great ride for me. That was a, a an eye opening experience because it took me from kind of the academic infrastructure world where we're trying to you know glue together Sun OS machines and so on to the enterprise world where the problems were much bigger and there was much more at stake. And the, the very first thing that was at stake was the website couldn't withstand the internet. And very quickly we they made that move to go to Akamai. And that that transformation, that that leap to Akamai, which was a distributed system, was game changing for the New York Times. And that's when I, that's when it clicked in my mind. It's like, there is this, there's this amazing potential for the same sort of distributed approach on the internet with kind of distributed architectures on one end, the scale of the problems that the internet produces and enterprise dollars on the other end. Like big companies are willing to pay a lot of money if you solve big problems with a distributed system. And, you know, that sort of defined my, my career all the way to now. Well, then what was your, the, the startup after that? Well, I started out, we did Memora. And, and so after that, once we shut down Memora, my brother went and started Tableau and I went and started Archivist. And my observation on Archivist, Archivist was very easy because in a way I was, I was sort of taking the lesson from Memora, which was put it all in a data center, 
Don't get it near the end users. Just build whatever you're gonna build in a big data center and then host it professionally over the internet. Um, the thing that I wanted to build on the internet, and you know, at the time, it's amazing to think how 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 inspirational some of these things that I think get very little credit nowadays were. But you know, Napster was was a, a breakthrough, Ugh, incredible breakthrough. I love Napster. And, <laughs> and it had nothing to do, you know, like the piracy, the the the, the legal, the lawsuit, and all. Forget all that. Technically, mm-hmm. it was a breakthrough of enormous proportions because for the first time, because the internet was already there, it was yep. possible to cobble together all these computers. And what I saw in Napster was, and to use them for storage was a brilliant idea. So I said, you know what? The enterprise is gonna need tons and tons of storage. So at the times the file servers were bursting at the seams. If we can build a sort of professional managed Napster that is nothing but storage capacity. So it's not about hosting music or hosting Madonna or anything like that. It's really about just the raw capacity. We could scale that thing to petabytes, which at the time seemed unthinkable. And with it, everything would scale. Your access to it would scale, the capacity would scale, and the protection. It would be easy to build a system where those computers, just like with Napster, would self-protect one another. That is, the computers always knew that there were copies of the data in other computers. And if they lost, if we lost a node in the cluster, the other computers would recreate from the remaining copies, new copies in other nodes. So, you know, what, what, what you were doing in Napster was just kind of this ad hoc unmanaged system with lots of computers, the ones in your basements, the one in my basement and so on, could now be a managed system in a data center, but with the same kind of autonomous thinking that Napster had introduced and distributed system that Napster had introduced. So, you know, we, a lot of, you know, Amazon S3 owes an enormous debt to the thinking in Napster. So at that time, you know, I sort of, and I went like, I need a real expert on this idea of how you cobble, how you build, you know, like in school, we had done clusters of 10 and 20 servers. All of a sudden I wanted to take that idea to hundreds of thousands of servers. And I was like, and you know, those were back in the days, and this is good for entrepreneurs to know, where you would still go to the MIT library and sit down and just page through the journals and find out who were the real experts on like distributed hash tables. And then you would call up the person and it would be some, you know, professor, more likely a graduate student or some professor. This was a, I believe at Berkeley. And, uh, and, you know, you talk about what it would take to implement this thing. And then you start cobbling together the talent and the company to make it all happen. But, but the story, and this is something that I, that I did learn with archivists very well, the, the fact that I had the perspective from the times, not only on, the, on that there would be very big problems with big files and lots of files in large companies, especially media companies, but that we had been able to solve the website problem so well with Akamai and their distributed architecture. Those two things put together gave me all the kind of runway that I needed to take off on Archivist. Because um, after that, it was more execution um, and, and bringing the right expertise together. But we knew what we were trying to get to. Um, we knew what the product needed to be. Now, that doesn't mean that we got it all 
perfectly. But, but how, how is it the market as it relates to raising capital? I mean, you did have an exit from a previous company, but this is kind of new concept, new thinking. So were investors, did they see the market and you know raising capital? How difficult was that for this company? You know, one of the craziest things is that all of my investors from the internet here had all gone on hiatus. And uh, it, that was terrible. So because one of the big things you build as an entrepreneur in your career is your reputation. You know, like whatever you do, never, never, uh, you know, betray in any way your first investors. No matter how bad you feel about the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. Honor mm -hmm. your promise to your investors because they're giving you their money and you better honor that. And that in turn will pay huge benefit when you go to the next company. And now they can check your record and they, they know that you're kind of solid investment. Um, for me, it was, it was kind of, it was upsetting that I couldn't go back to my own network and everyone seemed to be doing other phones, smaller phones. Now the exception was Fred's, uh, uh, Fred Small, right? No, Twitter, he invested in Twitter. So he was, he went, you know, he went back, invested in Twitter later. But when I was raising money for archivists, none of those guys uh, were, were, um, were around. So I had to find new investors. Now, fortunately, the fact that I had had a successful exit and the fact that I was coming out of the being the Times CTO was hugely attractive to all the mainstream investors like Matrix, like uh, Northridge. Um, in, and in this case, in the case of Archivist, Northridge and Polaris were, were key to that uh, initial investment. And, you know, what, what I like about it is that nowadays, I, I mean, I see these presentations, they're so slick, you know, they're like, they, everything looks beautiful. Everything looks like a Kickstarter video. You know, at that <laughs> time, I remember going to uh, uh, Ed Anderson, the head of Northridge, and all I had was a notebook full of notes in pencil. And I think there was, I mean, 12 pages. And half of it was on the design of the system, which was the piece that I was mostly interested on. And the other half was in a business justification for why I felt that um, there would be a market and appetite media and in other sectors for this. And I could tell that to him, the fact that I was really straightforward, the fact that I was, I had experience from a job that had kind of prepared me to see the problem and the fact that my notes were extremely meticulous. I'm not sure that he understood 80% of them, but they were, I had thought, you know, in every company that I've started, I kind of really try hard to convince myself that the system is buildable before we start a company. That's a really important part. I think for any technologist, it's like you don't wanna be, you don't wanna be the reason the company ever fails. So you wanna make sure the technology is buildable. Now, whenever I see one of these startups that like, you know, we're going to make batteries that last 10 times. And here's a napkin drawing of it. I'm like, that's probably not a good idea on how you start a company. Um, and so, you know, we, he, 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 he backed me into archivists and, and that was a good, that was a good learning experience. We built a system. It wasn't without, without some pain. Uh, I have to, I had to fire the, the VP of engineering. The first one, he was the wrong guy for the job. But the second white guy was terrific. And he was actually my co-founder for uh, Nasuni, Rob Mason, who was just a tremendous engineer, one of the best engineers I've ever encountered. Uh, and he, um, he figured out how, how we would build it together. I'll tell you, the, we built a flawless system. And then you know, Hitachi Data Systems and bought the company 
And to this day, that system is still the object storage system for, for Hitachi. And you know, mm. this preceded AWS S3 as a public service where you could do object storage by almost 10 years. Uh, and the, uh, the big insight for me in the, in, in, with Archivist, the big failure was, you know, I really felt the lack of having a complete system and how difficult that was to sell to customers. So at the time, one of the things that we were, we built a system that gave you infinite storage. We built a system that self-protected. It could distribute itself across multiple data centers. We did everything we said we were going to do. But the way you had to use a system was brand new. There was this thing at the time, and we, we were really pioneering this idea that you would talk to the storage via a REST API. So, which is just like the S3 APIs today. Like there was an HTTP call that you would make to put data into it, to get objects out of it, uh, and, and all that good stuff that you, basic operations that you need to do with storage. That require that the buyer uh, understand how to program to the storage. Now today, almost every company has programmers that can program to S3. Back then, the operators of storage were delivering the storage typically through some kind of file system interface like SIFS or NFS or something like that. And not having that piece of the equation forced really narrow the, the, the TAM, you know, the addressable market of what we could go after with that product and made it so that, you know, we only sold into like the defense department. We only sold into NASA. We only sold into massive outfits that had that thing. And, and for the longest time, I kept thinking if I only had a file system, because you know, the file system is also useful for many other things. But one of the things that I definitely needed at Archivist was to complete the system, to give, to package it in a way that these big customers could buy it. And I watched, you know, I had good friends at, uh, a Time Warner. And I watched my kind of CTO peers in those companies buy Isilon, which was not as scalable, not as cost-effective as what we had built, but had a file system interface into the cluster. And uh, it, it taught me a hard lesson. It was, uh, you know, it was, it, it, it's very hard to execute a go-to-market when you're missing the complete you may have what you think is a complete product from a technical perspective, but all that matters is look at your buyer and look at how they're buying that feature now and make yep. sure you have a complete product from their perspective. Yeah, that, that market feedback tells all, and especially when you want to start scaling at you know, go-to-market aggressive efforts. But you know, the company was acquired by Hitachi, like you mentioned. So what led you down the path of starting Nasuni? Nasuni. So you know. So when Hitachi bought the company, great company culture, very technical. You know, it's, it's the only company, it was the only company at the time in storage, uh, the big storage companies that was run by engineers. So all the way to the top, they were engineers. So it was very easy to communicate up and down the, the chain. They were chronically risk adverse though. And so, you know, they, they, they made me CTO and of all their file system strategy, file services, NAS, everything that touched files. And they said, what do you want to do? And, and they were really open about the, you know, the answer, the question, I guess. And uh, I said, look, the, the, we have the, right now, we have the best object storage in the market. 
um, but it's really hard to sell. It doesn't have a file system. What we need to do is we need to build very large data centers and fill them up with this magic object storage technology that can scale and self-protect and do all this stuff. And then we need to re-architect our file systems that we're selling today in like boxes, small boxes that are a pain to protect, that don't scale and that are very expensive. We need to re-architect those boxes so they can talk to the object store. If we do that, we can then charge as a service fee for that whole system. And what I was trying to do was solve the, the system problem for, for Hitachi. Um, and you know, it's, I mean, that conversation, I never got a firm no, but I, I, we kicked that around for a year and a half and I could tell we were not gonna be able to change the company. It was too big a change. You know, co big companies can only change so much and it takes them a long time. And, uh, and then in uh, 2008, Amazon introduced S3, AWS services. And the first service was S3. And not only did they do that, you know, introduce this object store, but both the API, which was this REST API, and the, um, the implementation details with Dynamo were made public. And we looked at those documents and we were like, oh my God, it's here. Like, this is everything we wanted to build that we would build in the back end at Hitachi. So Amazon is gonna do that. So that means there is a huge opportunity in the market because they're gonna run into the same problem we ran at Archivist. You know, every enterprise customer needs to have their NAS, their file servers um, available to the applications, the end users, you know, access controls their version. There's a ton of infrastructure that depends on the file system end of the equation. And no one is working on that right now because no one can see that these object stores are the future yet of all storage. And at the time, I don't know if you remember, kid, but at the time, everyone just thought that the object stores were deep, cheap storage that you could use for your backups. And the first companies for the first like five years were all doing backups. And we we're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If you build the file system into the object store, then back to our point at the very beginning of our conversation, back to the point of like turning things backwards, turning things upside down. The traditional approach was, I have all my high performance, my real file system is in this tiny little box very close to me. And then when, I, when the data ages, I'm gonna push it out to this object store that is far away, deep and cheap. And the problem with that is that the little box in the front is always a bottleneck to this monster. You know, it's like having a nuclear power station in the front and only tapping into it via a tiny little outlet to power a light bulb. It's just crazy. But if you turn it around and you implement the file system in the object store, and then you use very straightforward caching to bring what you need from that to the front, all of a sudden, every bottleneck in file systems is eliminated. Like all of a sudden you have file systems that can scale forever. You have file systems that can self-protect like the object store can protect and they, these file systems can version themselves forever. And you have a file system, which in a very exciting way can do Akamai in reverse, can actually synchronize writing data from multiple locations and then being able to read or write that data again from multiple locations via this massive, you know, cloud object storage core. And, you know, that's what's made Nasuni the company that it is. And, and I'm very happy that, you know, it was the right thing at that time to say, this company just 
cannot do this. They are a great company, they're good culture, but they can't do this. Now I felt I cannot do this on my own. Mm -hmm. That's why I was still at Hitachi. But the moment AWS launched S3, I was like, I don't need to do it alone. I'm gonna do it with AWS. I'm gonna do it on their back. And I can bet you that there are gonna be other clouds out there that are gonna be competing with similar backends. And I'm gonna plug into all of them. I'm gonna make this play where I have a file system that can talk to every public object store that's out there. So you saw that like Microsoft and Google, they would- uh... Microsoft, Google, yes, our other partners, yes. And people like, you know, IBM, which has a private object store. And, you know, if you can give me a REST API, I will certify it and I will write to it and I will give you a file system in it. I will format your object store so that you can use UniFS or file system and get these magic features on top of your object store. One thing that I learned was the naming of the company, I like, Nas, Uni. I'm like, oh, the SUNY. Like, I, I never took those two words apart and saw like that was the meaning of the company until I heard you on yeah. another podcast. Yes. <laughs> and that is what happened when two engineers start a company, you know, my, my <laughs> co-founder. So, so Rob Mason, the guy that built um, the archivist system, you know, he was my co-founder for Nasuni because we knew the problems inside and out. And that was, you know, in Nasuni, we definitely knew what we were doing day minus 10 because we have so much experience. We are, we're like the world's experts in object storage. And now we're bringing the, the file system expertise to it and you know and he came out of emc so he knew a lot already about traditional storage and file systems and all that stuff and you know we just sat together in an afternoon actually just took that much and we he called me up and he said i've, I've done a cross check of all these domains all these domains are available in the .com and domains and i remember he said we the, the file system from the beginning we have been talking about the idea of unifying all the functions in the file system so creating some kind of unity of a file system where you wouldn't have to back it up because the backup would be in there. You wouldn't have to DR because it would be in there. There would be performance with like all these functions that are done by different parts today would be done in one synthesis. Um, so the idea of a unity was, was there. And so he told me, he's like, he said, well, so we're NAS because you know that's what people use to store files. They use their network attached storage. And then we can say NAS unity. And I was like, why don't you try Nasuni, Nas Unified? Just try it. And he searched it and he was like, that's available. I was like, let's do it. Grab it, done. And you know, then it, then, done, we're done. And, and I like the fact that it was pronounceable in every language all over the world. I like the fact that it sounded Japanese because that means it's great engineering. You know, people, we, I love Japanese products, they're good engineering. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I talk, of, I, I call a friend of mine who's actually married to a Japanese uh, woman. And I said, I got this great name for this company. You're going to love it. And I told him, I said, he said, oh, that's stupid. Means from the eggplant in Japanese. It does. And, you know, ever since I've thought, I thought you know, the biggest company in the world in technology today is Apple. What's wrong with the eggplant? Why are we so prejudiced against eggplants? <laughs> you never uh, know. You never know what never the game is going to be. Well, let's fast forward a little bit because nasuni um, has been on quite a rapid growth curve for a good chunk of time. And you've raised, you know, venture capital along the way. I think the total amount is, I think it's 168 million in that general vicinity, at least. That's right, uh, yeah. So where's the company today? Like what, like where, like size solution, like if you kind of a, bring us up to speed today. 
So, you know, it took a long time, you know, again, being, being early by a decade, it's very painful. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we started the company, I think no one was ready to put, you know, our pitch to you was to a big company was we'll take, we'll take your files. We'll get rid of your backup. We'll get rid of your DR sites. We'll simplify that whole equation. Give us the files. And by the way, they're going to be stored with AWS who you should be able to trust. You know, 10 years ago, that was hard. Yeah, no, people were shaking their head like, what? <laughs> yeah, and they were like, what do you what? mean there's no backup? And I was like, yeah, backup is terrible. You know, when I was running operations, we never relied on backup for file servers because they took too long. And nowadays you can really tell, you know, big companies are down for days and weeks because of ransomware, because they're trying to recover from backup. It's a, mm. it's a terrible idea. To backup a file server is the wrong thing to do. The alternative, is to have versioning in the file system snapshots and then use those. The benefit of that versus having an independent system um, was not visible back then. And the scale of the problem was hardly visible. So we had, you know, the first years were really tough. Like the first years where we were, were kind of, I had to reset my expectations, which I think it's, you know, like one of the, one of the big things that, that you do it very early on and you can afford to do very early on in a company was, you know, we, let me give you two corrections we made that were like fundamental to, to, to surviving. Um, the first thing is we said, okay, the world isn't going to be ready for this. So we're going to lead with the partners. We're going to lead with, we're going to partner with Iron Mountain was deploying a, uh, an object store and uh, AT&T had another one. And they were, they were like big OEM partners. And we said, we're going to lead with the partners we're going to be a utility within the partners and we're going to really target this to their customers. And their customers were all SMB customers, very, very small customers. Um, we did that for about a year to survive, to, to basically say, okay, these guys are ready because these guys can't deal with backup. They can't deal with anything. They're small, they're smaller accounts. And that nearly killed the company. That was like instant death because people like Verizon, AT&T, uh, Iron Mountain, they're actually terrible at selling to those small customers. And it, the, the sales motion kills you and you get nothing. The customers are worth very little and there's a lot of support and onboarding headaches with it. So, but, but the, 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 the advantage was it gave us the first kind of cohort of mid-size accounts within, the, within 130 very bad accounts, very small accounts. We, I remember, had three or four accounts that were mid-sized and they were like sort of, uh, you know, biopharmaceutical, you know, bio, you know, sort of small um, biotech outfits in Cambridge and stuff like that. And I remember going to a couple of them, just two of them and saying, look, I know you have IC. I know you have these very big storage systems, but you're just using me for your crappy stuff. Why? What is missing in my offering that you would need to, for me to get the rest of your storage. I want all your files. I don't just want this little use case that you're giving me. And they told me, and you know, it was, it was incredible. It was, you know, they wanted an end-to-end, -end, I won't bore you with the details, but they told me the two, three things that we needed to add to the service, um, of which the only one that was really hard for us is they wanted some sort of appliance that they could deploy. At the time we were, we were only VMs, we were only software, and they wanted a, something that was easy to manage that was managed by us that they could buy from us 
We did that and within two years, we were closing mid-sized and large accounts. And then after that, you know, we, we just, you know, then after that, I had to figure out the scale to go to market. So I went back and I was like, okay, if I want more mid-sized accounts like you guys, where do you buy your ISO from? And the answer of that was these channel partners and those channel partners. And so we went to those channel partners and we introduced our offering that way. And, you know, that sort of was the beginning of Nasuni transitioning to a more, to, to more what we were built to from the beginning, which was this larger account. You know, every problem we tackle is a problem in scale. That means we have to tackle big accounts. Otherwise we're, we're wasting everyone's time. Um, and you know, then, then you get a couple of marquee accounts. You get that first big customer, that first customer that really represents the, the prototype of the customer you're going after that says yes. And we're willing to put all of our files and all of our storage on your platform. And we just killed ourselves for probably a couple of years, making sure everything worked perfectly for them. And then that launches us, you know, that launches to the next, to the next level. And, uh, and, you know, today it's like, today we have great references. We, we are, we're dedicated in certain verticals in the market. There's this whole thing, but it all started. And, you know, I always say the unsung heroes in technology, especially in IT, are those really visionary CIO directors of IT that take the leap and they are not common and they are gems. And, you know, whenever I see that someone is kind of has flaky technology and hasn't done their little notebook exercise and, and hired the best people and built the best system and will stop at nothing to make a customer successful. Whenever I see those guys getting burned by those entrepreneurs, I am merciless. Like I think those entrepreneurs deserve to be flushed out of the ecosystem. That sort of sloppy, non-detail oriented technical thinking is terrible. And, you know, because you are burning the champions, you're burning the next guy, the next great tech company that's going to come in with an offering, you know, everyone is just going to laugh at this guy and go like, hey, yeah, you told us product X and Y was, was great and it wasn't. So, and, and you know, it, like, in, like everything in life, it, typically in those accounts, there's a great marriage between a visionary CIO, director of IT or director of infrastructure and a very detail-oriented person that works for that person. Who act because that's what makes a successful team, you know. And that second in command, he will take your company through all its paces. He will make you suffer every step of the journey. But at the end, they will be successful, and you will be many, many times successful because of that. So, if I had one word of advice to companies that are just getting started in this space, is like once you find those teams, those people that are so incredible and are willing to bet on your technology, stop at nothing. It doesn't matter what you have to do to make them successful because your entire success depends on that. If you fail, there's, that's, that's a point of no recovery. Like, you know, if you burn your champions, you're done. And especially if you're a channel company, the channel has a way of spreading bad news that's so complete. Um, everyone will know that you're you're just a fiasco product so nasuni like what are your plans for the future like growth plans hiring like what's the current you know state of of growth well you know i'll tell you this our biggest bottleneck is hiring and specifically hiring great technical talent um and 
it's very hard, right? Boston is very competitive. AWS has landed the mothership with us, and it, they're sucking talent like it's not there's no tomorrow. Um, and you know the 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 plan from the beginning. So I always said, you know, Nasuni is likely to be uh, my last company or right up there because it's not a company that I was planning to ever sell in the first three, four years when I, when we started. We knew that we were going to disrupt storage and turn that entire market upside down into a services market, you know, like delivering storage as a service, like everything else, you know, like software as a service that made Salesforce successful. We thought, and we, we have been on this mission to deliver storage as a service, specifically file storage as a service. And, you know, that is the sort of, that's one of the things that I think we are we kind of been missing in Boston. We got we have a handful of companies that have gotten big enough um, to become the great incubators for the next wave of entrepreneurial talent and the next wave of technical talent and so on. And you know we're still benefiting from the the old guys that are sort of dying. The, you know the digital guys and all of those great 128 tech companies that existed. Um, but really, the in the more, more recent you know, history, it's more marketing companies, right? Nothing against them, but you know, it's HubSpot and yeah. Wayfair. And those are awesome, but not from a technical perspective. Like they don't build real hard technology and you need a technology ecosystem to build great technology. Like none of my companies would have been possible without the five companies before that company where the people that we recruited were trained at. And I always wanted Nasuni to be that. Like from the very beginning, you know, we were very much, and, uh, and you know, our, our chief scientist is directly from Akamai. And, you know, he was the one that designed the video streaming, David Show, phenomenal architect and engineer. His vision for how we were essentially a, a very similar model to the Akamai model, except that we could do reads and writes and high performance at the endpoints and all this stuff, it was very, influential and it still is very influential for us and like that's where we'd like to be i mean that's where we'd like to be but to continue to innovate you know in a way i think akamai has gotten a little slow in terms of adding things and the cloud is kind of eating them alive because in technology if you're not building the next thing you're you're falling way behind um but for us and so you know if you ask me like what i'm excited about today is you know all the all the detailed issues that we had to solve because customers were starting from their own on-prem data centers and we were allowing them to use the cloud to, to store their files. All of that stuff is kind of losing its importance. Like all that stuff is, we don't focus a lot of our technical expertise on that. The problems that are interesting now is you know, you got these multi-petabyte file systems, you've got huge performance requirements and the entire infrastructure stack is moving to the public cloud. How do you glue it together? How do you bring the pieces that are in the cloud together at the vast scale that these companies, you know, require you to have, um, which pushes, you know, we're very lucky in that UniFS, the file system was actually built for this kind of unlimited, it's so it's native to the object store, so it, it grows with it. But you know, that doesn't mean that every part of our system is equally prepared for what's coming. 
And so what we're making sure is that we eliminate all the bottlenecks. Like wherever we identify, you know, for instance, I wish we could bring a million files into the file system about 10 times faster than we can do today. That's a bottleneck. How do we solve that? How do we re-architect parts of the system and leverage this incredible new ecosystem of features that exist at Azure or at AWS to solve that problem? Um, and I think if you keep doing that, the problem is not going away. Big companies store big files and have tremendously complicated workflows that depend on those files. If you can enable them to manage that well, uh, you have a great business for now and you know as far forward as I can see. Um, and so you know what I'm making sure every day is that that happens, that we are that we're marching to that certain future of continuing to solve the scale problem for files, for in the cloud, for, for large accounts. Well, for an engineer, this is really complex, interesting work to tackle. Yes, and you know what? For a software engineer, it's even more exciting because I've always hated hardware. So I hate dealing with the nuance of hardware. I love the fact that the problem now has migrated to I mean, this is one of the things I love about physics is like, it's really a mostly conceptual idea software problem and not a problem of this RAID card versus that RAID card or battery protector versus none. Like that world is going away faster than, you know, than we can say in a Sunni. So it's good to focus on software. Well, for, uh, to flip the, the coin a little bit. So if you're a founder, you know, technical founder, and you're starting to scale your engineering team, starting to build it out, like that initial engineering foundation, like what advice would you give about building that core initial engineering team when you're that early stage company? You know, I, I, uh, I would always trust your gut. Your gut is really important. And if you can't trust your gut, you're not a founder. You're not an entrepreneur. Um, you know, like people don't people don't talk enough about this, but you 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 know you can look at someone's credentials and recruiters can say all kinds of great things about candidates and all this stuff. But ultimately, I, I mean, I can tell you this about my my co-founder, uh, about Rob. When you meet the right person, it's it's as it's as powerful as love. It's it's emotional, and your way of thinking about problems is similar, and the kinds of interests you have is similar, but you're complementary. And by the way. I don't think two people could have been personality-wise more different than Rob and myself. Complete opposite, you know, I'm funny, he's funny, but in a very different way. I mean, our personality is diametrically opposite, but our technology taste, our, our intelligence, our ability to abstract problems, our ability to get stuff done was very, you know, similar. Now, when you go to the next level, so, Let's talk about, so that's founder to founder. That's, that's equals, equal partners. Um, when you go to the next level and you're talking about the core, the founding team, the founding engineering team. So this is, first of all, no more than four to six other, other people to the team. That's when you need, you absolutely have to rely on a gut feel. And what you should be wary of is if you get any uneasy feelings on anyone. Don't hire them. You know, like I can tell you that at Nasuni, we had 
a great core team. And I had an uneasy feeling about one engineer. And that one engineer added enough trouble in the system that to this day, we're unwinding the damage that was done by that weak, weak link in the system. And thank goodness that, you know, when, when it came to, to who was going to build what, one of the good decisions that we made, and this tells you how incredibly path dependent um, those initial years are. Those initial, it's really that initial year. This is all happened in the first four months. Um, you know, the, the, the our one saving moment was the fact that I, I asked the, 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 actually I asked my uh, chief architect, the, the David Shaw, the guy from Akamai. I said, what's the hardest thing in the system? And, uh, and he said, this part. I said, how come you're not building that? You're, you're the best guy in the team. And, uh, and he said, oh, this other guy wants to build it. I said, no. We're not doing that. And we reverse <laughs> it. Had we done the opposite, had we not done that move, it would have been a disaster. You know, we would have never gotten off the starting point. So that's the next layer. And you know, then after that, it's it's wonderful. So in my career, I've, I've been doing this for long enough now that I can tell you the kids that we hire that were in their 20s when we hired them, either at Archivist or at Nasuni, they're now the leaders in the company. And we groom them, we, we train them, they know the values of the company, and they are the ones that are, they're the ones that I'm most proud of because they're the ones that have been formed with our values and, and you know, everything that we represent. And, and I can tell you that one of the, I love unsung heroes. You know, I told you about the champion in, uh, in, in when you're talking about early adopters. The same is true, you know, um, Russ Newfield, who's our, our, our chief cloud officer, he's, he kind of runs all the critical backend system. He's a mathematician by training. And one of his great attributes is being able to identify these young cadets and form them and train them. And that is always sort of underestimated in a company to be that guy that sets the culture for the younger band that's going to become you know, five, 10 years later, if you're still around the leadership band, or even if you started the next company, those are the guys that are now moving up and are becoming real leaders in the company. So being able to identify them and to groom them is absolutely crucial to your career success. When you talk about the 30, 40 years that is your career, as opposed to the hustling of the next, you know, four or five years to make a startup successful. So you're very busy building a company, of course, uh, but what do you like to do for fun outside of work? <laughs> I love uh, to swim, as anyone that knows me knows. Um, and I just, if you can't get a hold of me, typically because I'm underwater. Um, so I swim a, a great deal. I read a lot, but I, the, what I do for my, you know, and the thing I love about swimming is that you're underwater, so there's no interruption. And I like to think about anything that I'm thinking about without interruptions. So it gives me that space to just sort of go for a long time without having to be interrupted. That's why, you know, like I'm not in social media. I'm not, I, I hate interrupts. And uh, this is a very engineering personality thing. Like engineers do not like to be interrupted in the work. Andres, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the fun stories and all these you know, great uh, companies that you've built and all the lessons learned. Appreciate it. Okay, this was a pleasure. Thank you. This was wonderful.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.